Since the victory of Jesus over sin and death, have Christians moved beyond the need for lament? Have we outgrown lament? This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm Paul Caminiti. I'm here with my colleague, Glenn Powell. And we're also very glad to be joined today by Rebecca Eklund for um, an ongoing contribution to our somewhat intermittent series on biblical lament. And uh, Dr. Eklund teaches scripture, theology, and ethics at Loyola University in Maryland. Uh, she is the author of Jesus Wept, The Significance of Jesus's Laments in the New Testament, Practicing Lament and uh, the Beatitudes Through the Ages. So, uh, Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It really is such an honor for me to be with you today. Yeah. We've uh, been looking forward to this podcast, and uh, your name has surfaced mm. multiple times, and uh, it just seemed appropriate at this particular existential moment, right, in at least Western culture and really around the world, for us to be talking um, about lament. Mm. And that's been somewhat of your scholarly focus. Um, uh, the Jesus Wept book came out in 2015. Um, I think we had storm clouds that were gathering at that time. I don't know if you were thinking about that mm. as you were writing. And then Practicing Lament came in uh, 2021 in somewhat the midst of the storm, which many people believe is a long way from being over. And so uh, we, uh, we're, we're looking forward to the conversation with somebody who has spent so much of their uh, life on this topic. But before we delve into that, um, Rebecca, the first question we always like to ask our guests is about their, uh, their personal journey with, uh, with the Bible. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your story of coming to know and then love the scriptures? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So. It's actually hard for me to remember a time when I wasn't really immersed in the scripture. I feel uh, completely lucky to have grown up in a in a you know warm, loving Christian home, and I grew up in a in a kind of Bible centered church, a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church, and so scripture was just part of my my upbringing. But I can think of sort of two points where I, I really kind of fell fell in love with it and and just wanted to dive deeper and deeper into it. And one of them was when I was in college, I went to um, a, a Christian liberal arts college in Chicago called North Park. And um, I was an English major, first of all, but I ended up becoming a biblical studies double major just because I couldn't stop taking the classes because I just thought they were so <laughs> interesting. And, and, and I just, you know, the more I read, the more I thought this book is just endlessly rich and multi-layered and, and fascinating. And so I just, I kept taking more and more classes. And then I ended up going to seminary a few years later and I learned Greek and I learned Hebrew and learning to read in the original languages just opened up a whole new world for me. It was, it was just, it was just marvelous. I was really, really struck by, by reading in, in those languages. And one of my teachers at Duke, when I went on later to get my PhD said for her, one of the, the great uh, virtues of reading in the original languages is just that it forces you to slow down and just pay attention uh. to every word. Mm. And that for me was part of the virtue of, of reading, especially when I was new to it and I was quite 
slow and terrible at it. Mm. You know, it just, it forces you to slow down and just look at every single word you read so carefully. And, and that was kind of my, 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 but my second experience of really just falling more deeply in love with, with this, with this marvelous book, very complicated book, you know, a very complex and multi-layered book, but, um, but yeah, just, just it, endless riches, I think. Wow. That is great. And, uh, it, it is really just as a side note, it's fascinating to me how our different guests have different stories about how they've come to know and love the scriptures. And, mm. um, you know, some of them pursue things in depth and make it a career. Others go on to related kind of ministry and work. But um, I just think it's cool to see how God works in different life stories to bring people um, close to his word. And, uh, and then when people like you pursue it um, as a life's work, the rest of us benefit from that love and work with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So thank you mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. Okay, so getting into lament here, um, yeah. it, it might seem obvious, but maybe it's really not. I mean, what is lament? I, perhaps we think when we hear the word, we know what it means. But in the Bible in particular, it's a, it's a special and particular kind of thing, right? Something mm -hmm. more than just an outburst of grief or pain? Yes, absolutely. I think that it's a kind of special, you know, special thing is is a good way to say it. And when I first started studying lament, I thought, well, I kind of know what this is, you know. Um, but I did, I did come to see that that it really is something more specific and structured, like loosely structured, but something mm. that has a kind of frame um, around it. And and I think the the most basic definition of it that I really like is just that it's a cry for help to God in the midst of trouble. Mm. And, and each one of those pieces is important. It's a cry for help, right? Um, so, so you're actually um, crying out, but crying out for, for help of some kind, you know, um, whether it's just listen to me, hear me, you know, think of how many Psalms are just about listen, pay attention, look upon me. It's a cry for help to God. So I think one of the most important things about lament, at least as it occurs in scripture, is that it's always fundamentally a prayer. It's always mm, directed mm. towards God. There might be other people who hear, right? There might be kind of multiple audiences in view, but God is always, I think, the primary hearer, the, the person that the lament is primary directed toward. And then it's in the midst of trouble. And that could be trouble of, of many, many kinds, you know, um, uh, attacks by enemies, illness, slander, the fear of death, um, desertion by friends. So so what kind of trouble it is, you know, is is... It's so it's so varied, but that that to me is kind of the definition that that provides this frame. Like that's what this is. You know, it's mm. not just grief, although it often involves grief, but it could involve anger or hurt or confusion. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it it takes up all of those things. I think. Yeah, I I think you know, oftentimes when we think of lament, and anybody who's reading the scriptures deeply at all um, is going to bump into that, especially, but we think, especially, you know, in the first Testament, we think of Psalms and we think of these, you know, extraordinary cries really of pain, um, and of woundedness. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, Rebecca, you mentioned in one of your books, and I'd never, uh, picked up on this, but there's actually more Psalms of lament in the Psalm than, than, uh, than, uh, songs of praise, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is, uh, which is fascinating, but we, we don't, I think usually think of lament as something in, in the new Testament. Uh, but you wrote a very in-depth book 
on uh, the laments of Jesus and uh, the rest of the New Testament. So uh, tell us, first of all, um, how you became interested in that topic, and then talk to us about the laments of Jesus. Were they really an important part of his ministry? Can we tell the Jesus story um, without talking about lament? If uh, reading scripture through the Jesus lens is the interpretive key mm. To, mm. Uh, to reading scripture, you know, what do we need to take away about lament mm. from the New yeah. Testament? Absolutely. Yeah. So first of all, I'd say, I don't think we can read the Jesus story without Mm. the lens of lament. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not the only lens, but I think it's completely indispensable to his, to his story, his narrative as it's told in scripture and how in in the new Testament, how I sort of got interested in lament in the new Testament was really through um, two different classes I took when I was um, starting my PhD. I was kind of, I have no idea what I want to write my dissertation on. This is this enormous thing, you know, everyone has to do. I thought, I have no idea. And I took a class um, called Death, Grief, and Consolation in Early Christianity. So we mm. read consolation literature, which is an actual genre in the ancient world, wow. where people would write formal letters of consolation, of comfort to people who, had, who were grieving, typically grieving a death or mm. a loss. So we read Stoic literature, you know, the Stoic philosophers would write consolation literature, which I found mostly non-consoling personally, you know, <laughs> because, you know, Stoicism is, is it, it's a, a complex philosophical school, but it's, it's in part about, um, you know, accepting death as a natural part of life and, and um, you know, trying as much as possible to sort of control the emotions and, and let your reason um, you know, rule you. Um, but then I read Christian consolation literature and I found it really fascinating how much they wrestled with the question of how you're supposed to grieve a death mm. when you believe in the resurrection mm. and mm. just this kind of wrestling of, of, of how you do that. And they appealed multiple times when I, when I read this literature to Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. Mm. Um, and they said, if even Jesus wept, um, at the grave of a friend, how could it not be appropriate for Christians to weep at the graves of our friends? And then I took a class on the passion narrative. Um, so the passion narratives in the gospels, you know, the, these, these, this last week of Jesus life is his suffering uh, beginning in the garden of Gethsemane um, through his arrest and trials and then the crucifixion. And I was completely bowled over by how much the lament Psalms um, provide the the script that's like the background music to the entire passion narrative. They're everywhere, mm. beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, weaving all throughout that crucifixion scene. You have Psalm 42 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and Psalm 31. It's just the lament psalms are everywhere. Mm. And so I just began thinking, well, if lament is such a key part of the Old Testament and such a key part of um, the Jewish faith, where is it? Where is it in the New Testament? I'd found I'd seen one place where it seemed to be all over the place, but I just thought I don't ever hear people talk about lament in the New Testament. Why not? Right. So I went looking. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating because you don't. You really don't. I mean, it's it's a little strange to me. Even during Holy Week, you know, I'm at a church, you know, that that um, observes the liturgical calendar, and the lament thing, even there, like even during Lent. It still doesn't seem to come up much. It's more penitence than lament that that I hear about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, that's. I think Glenn. I think that's a great point because, you know, lament includes penitence, but it's not only penitence. And I think one thing that you see happening in 
the Christian tradition, as it does take up lament in a certain form, is it tends to take it up only as penitence mm. and not as complaint, not as mm-hmm. what I what I sometimes think of as like protest lament. Um, so mm. it certainly has found a place for lament as penitence, crying out for help in the midst of the you know our sinful you know our sinful natures or whatever, which is part of lament, but it's not the only part. I think, and that's that's so important. Yeah, I think sometimes we don't think of Jesus as having a melancholy side. Uh, mm, mm. But, you know, some of his cries of pain, you know, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, yes, you know, yeah. if, if you had only, you know, I, I wanted to gather you together like chicks under my wing. And, you know, this seems to be um, Jesus has a capacity for um, deep sorrow, not just over individual lives that are falling apart. This isn't like Israel just had a few bad apples. There was disease in the orchard, if you will. Mm, mm. And he feels that deeply and mm-hmm. he, he expresses it uh, deeply. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good example of, of, of another type of lament that, that Jesus takes up when he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Um, you know, kind of, in a sense, you know, participating in the divine sorrow over, you know, God longing to gather up his people and his people being unwilling to be gathered, um, you know, um, yeah. So related to that, um, just thinking about Jesus and lament, and I mean, and, you know, the fact that everybody thinks about the Psalms of lament, the book of lamentations, um, maybe, maybe Jeremiah as the weeping prophet, mm-hmm. as they mm-hmm. call him. Um, yeah. Is there a sense that like all these laments are kind of gathered up. I mean, we talk about the life of Jesus being a fulfillment of the story of the scriptures that came before, um, all the things that Israel was meant to be, you know, all this kind of new Israel, new Moses stuff about Jesus. Do you think Jesus' laments are kind of the lament of all laments, if you will, or the telos, the goal mm. of mm. Israel? Does he kind of gather up all those earlier laments and bring them to their kind of deepest and hardest point? Does that make sense? It does. I So I love this question because I, I'd honestly never thought about it in, in quite that way before, but I think it is, it's such a beautiful way to think about it because sort of two, two things in terms of how I, how I began to think about Jesus and lament. And one is that for me, he really, he really stands on both sides of the lament. He is a lamenter, right? He, he mm. laments, he cries out in, in abandonment mm. from the cross using the first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, he weeps over Jerusalem. You know, he, 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 he struggles in the garden of Gethsemane. So he's a lamenter. So he takes up Israel's laments in that sense. But then he also is the one who hears the laments, right? Mm. Um, he, he's the one people cry out to for help continually mm, throughout wow, the gospels. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. son of David, have mercy on me, help me. I mean, that's, that's a kind of very concise <laughs> lament prayer directed mm. toward Jesus. So he's also the one who hears and he heals and he helps. Um, so I really see Jesus, you know, just standing on both sides of the lament in that sense, kind of, you know, taking up, taking up all the pieces of it. And then if you think about, um, the different last words from the cross that are reported in the four different gospels. I became mm-hmm. really fascinated by this because of mm. course in Mark and Matthew, it's, it's the, the, this, you know, depth of, of 
lament and anguish from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's what he says in, as recorded in Mark and Matthew. In Luke, um, he quotes from another lament psalm, but it doesn't sound like a lament because he says, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now that's from a lament psalm. And if you read it in context, it's quite a it's quite an anguished psalm of you know crying uh, out for help. But the uh, line that's quoted in, in Luke's gospel doesn't sound lamenting, but it's it's the from what we might think of as the kind of trusting portion of of mm. the the lament pattern, you know, that despite the trouble, you're still turning toward God, um, demonstrating your trust or your hope or your faith in God, even if it's faint, even if it's challenged, <laughs> um, you know, you still have that kind of element of trust. And then in John's gospel, I mean, he says other things, but I'm, I'm skipping some of the, the words. Um, in John's gospel, you know, it, it is finished. It is finished. Um, and um, I, I wrote about this in, in both the Jesus Wept book and then in this little more recent book. Um, I, to me, I read Psalm 22 so many times. I mean, I read it over and over and over again when I was, when I was writing this book. Um, I just thought, oh, huh, that sounds interestingly to me like the last line of Psalm 22. You know, it is finished. Um, and then, you know, he has done it is the last line of mm. Psalm 22. God has yeah. accomplished his salvation mm. to all the families of the earth. Um, now, I can't prove to you that that that's a deliberate resonance, but it just seemed to me that Jesus kind of embodies the full pattern of lament uh, on the cross. If you read all four mm. Gospels together, wow. he cries out in anguish. He expresses trust. You know, he expresses this confidence that God will accomplish his his redemption. So this makes me think of a follow-up kind of Bible reading question for our mm. audience. We yeah. talk a lot about reading the Bible well, and I remember still the first time I heard somebody say, like, when you read a scripture quote, like, let's go with these words on the cross examples. Um, Okay, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can still remember the first time I heard a preacher say, okay, but you have to go read the whole psalm, and Jesus is using this as a way to reference kind of the entire psalm, which ends in triumph. And so don't, don't think that God, you know, that Jesus is actually expressing being forsaken by God. And I remember thinking, mm -hmm. wow, that's a powerful thing. I need to always look up when I'm reading the Bible. And, you know, I hear the First Testament being quoted. I go look it up, make sure I'm understanding the context. Maybe that will always help me. But then I read something in your book that said, yeah, but you also can't let kind of that context sometimes overwhelm and obliterate the meaning of the phrase itself, mm -hmm. right? I mean, my God, my mm -hmm. God, why have you forsaken me? That's a strong thing to say. And you can't, you don't want to take away the sting and the power of that, I guess, by just saying, oh, the context is all good. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you can help us, if you have some words for us in just Bible reading in general, mm -hmm. maybe using these examples, how to read and, and get, you know, the context of the quote, but also let the phrase do its work the way it's used in the gospel or something like yeah, that. Exactly. I mean, I think that's, I think that's perfectly said, because I, I think there's kind of, two mistakes on either side, right? And mm. this kind of tension between um, saying, okay, this, this anguished cry is embedded in this, in this psalm that has these elements of trust and that ends on this sort of confident note of God's victory. And I think the mistake on one side is to 
is to diminish the real anguish of that cry by by jumping too quickly to the end and to the confidence and to the victory, right? Um, which is very natural. Like it's natural to not want to sit in that pain, mm. but you got to sit with it. I think you got to yeah. you got to yeah. hear it for what it is. But I think then the mistake on the other side is lifting that line out of its context and not paying attention to the larger psalm that it is embedded in, um, and to see that kind of the full pattern um, of lament, the full. Um, uh, I, I wanted to say sequence, but that's not quite right. Cause it makes it sound so tidy. I mean, Psalm 22 is not tidy, right? It's not right. like you yeah. start in anguish and then you end up in trust. It's like anguish, trust, more pain, and then some trust and then more anguish and confusion and then, and then confidence at the end. Um, so I think, hmm. and I think that's, that's generally, you know, the question about Bible reading in general, I think, uh, context, 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 you know, it's, it's so important. If you see one line quoted or an illusion made, um, one of the things that, that I, um, personally feel a lack of is, you know, I've tried to become familiar as familiar as I can with the narratives of the Hebrew Bible, which are so threaded throughout the, the new Testament, but, um, ancient readers just knew it way better than, than mm-hmm. I kind of ever have any hope to. I mean, they, sure. they memorized, you know, large swaths of scripture, especially the Psalter. Um, and so I'm, I'm always kind of thinking about when I see one line pulled out, like how much of the context are we supposed to be aware of? You know, um, is that supposed to evoke for us this wider context? So you want to let the, the line itself do its work. Yeah. But you also, I think, want to think about what wider context is this resonating with that, that we should maybe have rolling around in the back of our heads to help mm. us understand why this particular line is here? Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. You know, we, we hear statements that people make, and oftentimes the scriptures don't give us kind of the rationale behind their thinking. Yes, um, yeah, right. And so, you know... There's no footnotes this... that say, well, this is from, you know... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know... Uh, was was uh, Jesus' statement completely spontaneous? You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, or to your point, was he so saturated with the scriptures that he even prayed and mm. and you know bled um, out? You know, um, you know, if you cut him, <laughs> these prayers would 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 come out mm-hmm. of him, and mm-hmm. so. It, it is. It's fascinating. I mean, the whole the whole story that the wild bulls of Bashan, that the way you pronounce that have surrounded me. And I don't know, I think of burly Roman soldiers, you know, circling, mm. getting ready mm. to, to put them, put them on the cross. And um, and then comes this this phrase, which um, I think, Glenn, what you were getting at with your question is, does does what happen on the cross then? Is that like the apex of like Israel's mm-hmm. laments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's so um, natural that in, in a time of genuine need and, and anguish and fear, I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you look at Jesus in Gethsemane, that, that struggle seems very real to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that when he's, when he's at kind of his darkest and lowest moment, um, what what words does he does he draw from? What well does he draw from to express that? Of course, it's going to be the the psalter, right? It's going to be the psalms because that's that that has the the language of that that 
cry for help, you know, um, from the depths, as it were, as one of the Psalms says, um, you know, the Psalter is sometimes called the prayer book of Israel, and it's also called the hymn book of the church. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, it, 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 it has the whole range of kind of human experience, um, in, in those songs. And yeah. Okay. Rebecca, there was another idea that I ran across in your book, Jesus wept. And, um, it was just really, really intriguing to me. Um, and it's this idea that maybe even going back to the Exodus story, you know, where, where God is talking to Moses and says, I have heard my people crying out. So I have come down to rescue them. And it's, I, and it was this idea that actually maybe it's lament that moves God to action. And I had been thinking, okay, laments are important for us because we need to bring our authentic human experience, all of it to God. He doesn't want just happy, you know, praiseful things. He wants all of us and he wants us to be able to be in real authentic relationship with him. So it's important for us. But then when I read that in your book, I thought, wow, is lament important for God too? Does it, does it actually Mm. change things when we lament? Does, does it move God to action? Mm. And so I wondered if you could talk some more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I affirm, you know, what you said about lament being important for us, because I completely agree with that. But I, I, I actually, I want to give credit to a scholar named James Kugel, because he's mm. the one who, who put me onto this idea in one of his books. I don't off the top of my head remember which one, but um, James Kugel writes, writes about this idea that the, the cry of the victim or the cry of the oppressed or the suffering seems to be in scripture in the Hebrew Bible, the thing par excellence that moves God to, to action. And that's not to say that it, that it's a, it's a magic trick or a transaction, you know, right, it's not like right. we can pull the lever and force God's hand. It's not <laughs> like that. But, but what he, I think what he was pointing out is that um, so many times in scripture, beginning with the Exodus story, um, or well, going all the way back, I think to Hagar's Hagar in the wilderness, mm. right? Um, Hagar weeping in the wilderness, wanting to die when she's expelled from the from the camp by Abraham and uh, Abraham and Sarah. Um, God sees her, right? And that's that's the name Hagar gives God, the God who sees me. Mm-hmm. Um, he sees her, he sees her pain, and and he goes down and 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 saves her. In the Exodus, God God looks down and sees, it says he hears their groans rising up to him. He sees their suffering. And that seems to be the 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 turning point that that launches the Exodus, that launches God, you know, sending Moses to save them. And and I just was really struck by this idea that over and over in scripture you see uh, it's the suffering of God's people that that in the prophets it, it melts his heart. He thinks, you know, this is mm. this is my son. This is this is my firstborn. How can I, you know, I, they justly deserve my my punishment for what they've done, but I I can't. I just I love them too much. I can't keep punishing them. So that that's that's the idea that I got from Kugel, and I just I, I found really interesting as a way of saying it just God seems particularly moved by, by suffering to, to intervene and lament, I think is part of that, that, um, yeah, that cry that seems to particularly catch God's attention. Yeah. You know, even in this kind of maddening cycle in the Kings where, you know, one King rises up and he's, he's a horrible King and leads the, <laughs> the, the nation into idolatry and so forth. And so, 
then these persecutors come, et cetera, et cetera. And then a new king comes. But, but you know, each time, you know, it says that God heard their cries. Yeah. Um, yeah. And relents. He hears their cries and he relents. Yeah. He kind of yeah. can't yeah. help himself. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, <laughs> a, he's, he's caught up in this fatherhood thing and he just, mm. you know, mm. he can't help but to live into his character and nature. So, um, Rebecca, we uh, we oftentimes say on our podcast we want to find the human side of every truth, mm. and uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit about laments by Christians today. And mm-hmm. um, you were a pastor, as I understand, correct? I was early, yeah. early on in your career. So uh, this comes from more than an ivory tower for you, mm. and uh, no doubt you've sat with people who were completely broken. And so, you know, the the question is, uh, for Christians today, should we be lamenting? I mean, after all, we live on this side of the cross. You know, Jesus has won the great victory. Paul talks about rejoicing evermore. And the repeated theme of Thanksgiving again and again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what what would you say about whether or not lament is is as appropriate in this uh, time and phase in the story that we live in. And then mm-hmm. maybe talk a little bit about how the New Testament view of eschatology um, yeah. relates to this subject. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll start there because I actually think that it's the New Testament's view of eschatology that that shows us why lament is still such a key part. I mean, I think it's absolutely a, a key part of what it means to be Christian in the age that we're living in, right? And and the New Testament view of eschatology is what's sometimes called inaugurated eschatology, right? This this what's sometimes called the now and the not yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, the now of, of God's salvation being all the ways in which the new age has already begun, you know? So when we talk about, you know, victory in Christ and um, living into resurrected life now, um, all the ways that God has already defeated sin, death, and the devil in the kind of classic formulation. That's the now. Mm-hmm. But there's also the not yet. And the not yet are all the ways in which, um, you know, God's future redemption is still future. So I know you recently, I was just listening to this um, recently, actually, um, we're talking about um, the afterlife and the after afterlife on this podcast, <laughs> right? The, right? The promise of the, the new heavens and the new earth. The promise of the the resurrection of the dead at the end of history, um, in Revelation, you know, the end of Revelation, the the New Jerusalem, you know, descending into into um, the the recreated new creation. All that is the not yet, right? All of those are the things Jesus returning and making all things new. Those things haven't happened yet, and but we long for them to happen. And I think it's that longing for the not yet. That's where lament lives for me. It lives right in that space of saying, yes, you know, uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus, you know, accomplished uh, God through Jesus, accomplished this this decisive victory. Uh, But we're still waiting for Christ to return and for um, all things to be to be made new, for the tears to be wiped away. Uh, People still die. People still sin. People still get trapped by, you know, evil structures. Um, and all of those things are, are where we cry out to God to say, please bring your kingdom. Please let Christ return. Um, 
And, and so now whenever I pray the, the Lord's prayer and I pray that line, your kingdom come to mm. me, like that's a Christian lament because mm. it's, it's about wow. all the ways in which God's kingdom has not yet come. And we really long for it to come. So, so that's where I think it lives. And that's why I think lament is just fundamentally a very Christian prayer. It's embedded in this narrative of what God has already done in Jesus, but it's also embedded in this narrative of what scripture promises us is still to come. So it's lament, but it's like, it's colored differently maybe, or shaped by the victory of Christ. But yeah, that's fascinating that there's this kind of new way of lamenting maybe, but um, the work isn't done, so it must continue. Yeah, I love Jesus, that. Jesus shaped to lament, I guess, maybe, maybe yeah, that yeah. is a good way to think about it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think we talked about that in that uh, the podcast about life after life after death, um, that, that even the martyrs, you know, that yeah. are, have, mm-hmm. have left us, that, that they're still somewhat in a, a state of um, being perturbed. That yeah. justice has not been done. I mean, I don't know if what they think is about their own death and the pain and the anguish, or it's the pain and the anguish of looking out from the flames uh, at their loved ones who are, you know, going to continue to live with that anguish even after they're they're going to their their lives are going to end. But um, yeah, it it it's still definitely a theme, and there is that. That longing, you know, David has been anointed the king, but he's not the king yet, right? He doesn't have complete authority and power, and we're still waiting for that that king to mm-hmm. be able to rule and reign. Okay, and um, I, you know, you wrote a scholarly book, and it's like to me, mm-hmm. if you're going to read a scholarly book, you got to read the footnotes. Um, <laughs> oh, thank and, you. And, <laughs> At least the ones that aren't in German, you know, it's yeah, like, well, I know. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, yeah. no, that's, I mean, it was, this was the kind of substantive work it was. It was amazing and in depth. Um, but in one of those notes, you mentioned the philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff, mm-hmm. um, who was a teacher of mine back when I was at Calvin. Um, oh, wow. Wonderful. A, a yeah. Long time ago. Um, but one of the things he argues is that the mainstream theology of the church has stifled lament. Right, that's a strong mm-hmm. word. Um, mm-hmm. He mentions Augustine, who replaced lament with confession of sin. Mm-hmm. Calvin, who displaces it with patience and gratitude, and he even mentions American culture, which emphasizes this victorious living mentality, which has certainly come into the church in some, you know, some profound ways. So, just as yeah. an aside, I have a friend who has this phrase that I have just come to love, and I think it's so accurate. Um, he calls it the prosperity gospel of the emotions. Mm. Um, the idea that real Christian faith is always and relentlessly positive. Um, so yeah. I, I wanted to check with you is, do you think Walter Storff is right that we've kind of downplayed lament that um, it's, we've stifled it in the kind of the mainstream theology, of the church, maybe um, especially in the, mm-hmm. the life mm-hmm. of the church as lived. I know there's been a resurgence of lament study, it seems like in the scholarly world, mm-hmm. yeah. but in, in the church, it does seem to be, you know, stifled, I guess, is, is a word that, that I can feel and relate mm-hmm. to. So mm-hmm. I wanted to just get your take on what Walter Storff is saying there and your own work on lament. I mean, you wrote a book called Practicing Lament. Um, 
does this need to make a comeback in the church? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I hope so. I mean, I, I do think Walter Storff is, is right about this. I mean, Walter Storff, you know, as, as he's written about is, is certainly, um, inside the reformed tradition right and Mm -hmm. it's not only i don't you know it's definitely not only the reformed tradition that has struggled with lament but i think because of the way calvin approached lament and calvin had had a you know calvin really struggled (laughs) to to incorporate lament into into his theology that the the reformed tradition has certainly inherited that but of course if you look at other Traditions as well. I, I think Walter Storff is, is largely right about this. I love that phrase, the prosperity gospel of the emotions. I think that's that's fantastic because I, I do think you 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 see this in a lot of churches, right? This idea that you kind of have to put on your happy face to go to church and yeah. that if you're not, um, you know, rejoicing always that there's something wrong with your faith. You know, I, I think there's a certain way in which churches have made it uncomfortable even to express real doubts uh, about your faith as if doubt is somehow a sin, which mm. the first time I encountered that idea I was, I was kind of horrified by. Um, um, but, I, but I also think if there's one place in the church that has always kept lament, I would say it's the black church in America, right? Yeah. So um, mm. the black church tradition you know, from the spirituals, right, from African-American spirituals, many of which have, you know, lament embedded in them, you know, all the way through to the present day. That's a church that has has held on to lament because it's 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 largely been a suffering church throughout its history. Right. Mm. Um, so I do think when when we say, you know, the, the church has stifled lament. I think it's always helpful to think about which church we're thinking about. Yes, um, yes. Because I think once you dig down and you start to get more particular, you do start to see, well, there are, there mm. are church traditions, mm-hmm. especially um, the black church, but other, other, you know, minority churches as well in, in the States. And then, you know, uh, underground churches or persecuted churches around the world. Um, you know, the global church has a lot to teach us about uh, lament, I think, in, in different contexts. Um, Sim Chan Ra uh, has a wonderful book um, on on lament that addresses some of these issues that I, that I'm really indebted to. But but overall, I think Walter Storff has identified something that that's quite true, especially of, of more white church traditions or mainstream mm-hmm. church traditions. For um, you know, when he talks about Augustine replacing lament with a confession of sin, I guess the way I would think about that is yes, that's that's true. But I would also re-narrate it just a little bit as saying it's not that confession of sin is not lament at all it it's Mm. just that one stream of lament lament Mm -hmm. as penitence because that's certainly a stream that you see in in scripture right Mm -hmm. there are lament psalms that have a penitential element to them psalm 51 is kind of the classic example but but it's sort of edging out all the other forms of lament that i think rightly belong there like crying out to god in protest or complaint or confusion or doubt or all of those things. So it's just narrowed the lament tradition down, I think, to exclusively mm. penitence. Anyway, that was a long answer, but, no, but I think it's great. really important because especially as someone who was a pastor, you know, I, um, I just think l- churches should be places where people can bring their full selves and their mm. full experience of faith, you know, when it's broken, when it's shattered, when it's whole, when it's happy. I mean, Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice, but he also says weep with those who weep. And I think, I think overall, um, I would like to see churches 
live into that piece of his mm. advice a little more. Yeah, it's wonderful. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a delight. You've given us a great deal to chew on. And in the conclusion of your book, you write that lamented its uh, or calls on God to be true to his own character and to keep God's own promises uh, to humanity, to Israel, to the church. And uh, as we wrap this up, we uh, join you in saying uh, to all who are listening and to all who are participating, uh, blessed are those who lament. Mm-hmm. So uh, we encourage you to listen uh, and check out uh, Rebecca's books on uh, the lament topics. Also a terrific book on the Beatitudes. We'll post uh, these titles in our, our show notes. And uh, as always, the Bible Reset podcast is brought to you by Changemakers, which is our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount uh, to help us create resources that change the way uh, people read the Bible. So if you appreciate this podcast, if you'd like to support our work, uh, you can learn more about us at the Institute for BibleReading.org forward slash changemakers. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you again, Rebecca. Thank you so much for our listeners. And uh, we'll see you on the next one.